Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that thinks you should vote for who you believe in, which is why in the upcoming general election, this show is officially backing Odin the All-Father. This is episode 163, I'm Tin and Duyeb and Brexit Party leader and, oh no, what's that you've stepped in? Oh, that's disgusting. Nigel Farage is not standing as a candidate in the election, meaning that after failing to become an MP seven times already, he's finally respecting the will of the people. This doesn't mean the Brexit Party are standing down though, oh no, for Farage has unveiled 600 candidates, likely because they wouldn't allow any with veils. It seems as though the party campaign slogan is, there will be no Brexit without the Brexit Party, because it's nice sometimes to get your strategy from S Club 7. But there might be a Brexit without them, as originally there was talk of a Leave alliance with the Conservatives, because it seems now Farage is willing to be part of a union with people he doesn't fully agree with. It wasn't just Farage considering it. US President and Charles Crayon drawing of a sad pineapple, Donald Trump, wanted Farage to ally with the Prime Minister and year-old collapse sponge Boris Johnson. Yes, it turns out foreign interference is okay in Farage's book, as long as it's from someone white and stupid. Trump's exact words were that Farage and Johnson should come together, something that not only makes me wretch, but also is impossible, as each would selfishly try to finish first and then let the other one clean up the mess themselves, completely unsatisfied. The only way that Farage would agree to an alliance, though, was if Boris dropped his Brexit deal that Farage says was virtually worse than being in the EU, which, considering how many of his supporters are bots, would make that pretty real for them. But the Prime Minister has rejected any sort of axis of feeble with Nigel, stating that an election pact risks letting Labour into government, because he doesn't really understand how anything works. And so the BP will be taking 600 candidates into the December the 12th vote, or, as Farage originally thought, 650, before he remembered that Northern Ireland was part of the UK and that works differently. If only he'd have thought of that sooner, say, maybe three years ago. Will the Brexit Party be a bigger threat to the Conservative vote than their own party leader and Prime Minister, a man who started his election pitch from a chauffeur-driven jag while not wearing a seatbelt, further proof that he's not someone you'd want in control if the UK crashes out of the EU as he'll have already gone through the windscreen and died. Probably not in a ditch though, despite assurances. The Conservatives' tagline for the election campaign is, short-sightedly, Britain deserves better, a bold statement from a party that's been in charge for nine years ruining the country. Maybe it's a passive-aggressive slogan that should have brackets afterwards containing but if you leave us, we don't know what we'll do with ourselves. 
Britain does indeed deserve better than a party whose first policies appear to be a ban on fracking. That on closer inspection is just a moratorium. You know, in the same way you might do dry January, but as soon as it hits one minute past midnight on February the 1st, you're going to pour vodka directly into your eyes. Then there's the announcement that the party will be ending the benefits freeze in 2020 if they get into government, which is great news until you realise that this has always been on the cards as it was a four-year freeze that started in 2016 and was confirmed by the government way back in January. It's less a list of promises and more just a vague acknowledgement that they might turn up for work. Though to be fair, after Johnson's unlawful proroguing, I suppose willingly doing their jobs might be a novelty. Then there's the Prime Minister's insistence that his NHS spending plans are the biggest investment in the health service in recent memory. And you have to wonder if he has some sort of cognitive issue that means recent memory for him is everything up until five minutes ago, before which he's completely unaware of anything he or his party are responsible for. I wish I could get away with that, claiming I'd made the biggest effort in cleaning the flat in recent memory because I've just washed up one cup, despite it sitting on a pile of dishes that's been neglected for weeks. In an interview on Sunday, Johnson refused to answer what the naughtiest thing he'd ever done was. You might remember previous Prime Minister and beginner's claymation attempt, Theresa May, said that during the 2017 campaign, the naughtiest thing she'd ever done was running through wheat fields, because that was a breach of the commands installed in her EXE file. Johnson, though, said he would bitterly regret it if he divulged what the naughtiest thing he has done. He, a man who's been accused of groping colleagues, tried to arrange to have a journalist attacked, got a woman incarcerated in Iran by lying about her, doesn't know how many kids he has, lied on a bus, was racist, lied to the Queen, was racist again, lied to Parliament, wasted money on a bridge, went on holiday during the riots, spent £5 million of funding to tackle homelessness or something else entirely, gave government money to a woman that he was sleeping with and fronted a Brexit campaign that's now been referred to the Crown Court. You wonder if he only struggled with the answer what's the naughtiest thing he'd ever done because the interviewer hadn't put a time frame on it. Perhaps it should have been what's the naughtiest thing you've done this morning or perhaps in recent memory. It could just be that understanding what's considering to be naughty would require a sense of morals, something that's remained absent from Johnson his entire career. I mean, just last week the government were accused of whopping untruths, which I think is just a fancy way of saying big-time lies, by former Attorney General and extra in Angry Birds 2, Dominic Grieve. This is in relation to a report into the threat of Russian election hacking ahead of the election, but the government doesn't want to release until after December the 12th. As you know, I'm sure it'd be way more helpful to bolt the stable door once the horse is being handed back to you as a pot of glue. The government were meant to sign off the report within 10 working days, but insisted that the process takes six weeks, which is handy, as weirdly enough, that's the same amount of time it takes for the election to come and go, and so it won't be released until afterwards. Not releasing a report on Russian interference? Ah, I see, now it makes sense why Donald Trump has been referring to Johnson again recently as the Trump of the UK. You see, Britain does deserve better. Or are Labour an even bigger threat to the Conservative election victories than themselves, as the opposition party launched their campaign with the slogan, It's time for real change. Though it's very hard to tell if that comes from the leadership discussing the state of the UK under the Conservatives, or just the party PLP talking about their own leadership. Labour leader and Q-tip with glasses Jeremy Corbyn said that Labour would transform Britain, which, based on the toys I had as a kid, means it'll look great on the box but would get stuck somewhere halfway through being a robot on a truck and serve to be only useful as a lobbying device to cause my younger brother harm. 
Jez has said they're going after the tax dodgers, the dodgy landlords, the big bosses and the big polluters. Which again, I'm not sure if that's various policies they're announcing or just a long roundabout way of saying we're taking on the Conservatives. So far, the policies Labour have announced include, among others, rehousing the homeless immediately, renationalising the railways, ending tuition fees, a real living wage and free childcare for two to four year olds. All of which was reported as radical. Which is really odd, as that would mean that lying and then failing to do what you promised are normal standard policies, and I guess smiling at people food for all basic manners and saying thank you would be seen as extremist and highly dangerous. The main controversy has been over Corbyn's pledge to tax the wealthy, and I sympathise because you can just imagine all those poor billionaires quaking in their boots that cost more than Brexit has, worried that by contributing to society, they won't be able to afford... um that they may not be able to pay for... Uh, hang on. It would deprive them of... No, no, sorry, I've, I've got nothing. As you were. Apparently, the super-rich are planning to leave the UK immediately if Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, which is great as they're easily the worst of all the Marvel characters. Let's face it, they weren't contributing much anyway. Or maybe the Lib Dems are the biggest threat to the Conservatives, and that's why party leader and Bing but all grown up Joe Swinson hasn't been invited to the first head-to-head election debate on TV. The November 19th show will only feature Corbyn and Johnson, which is odd as I thought ITV had promised to have more women in comedy. Swinson says her party only need a small swing to win lots of seats, but I'm not sure how dismantled bits of children's playgrounds will help. What's more likely to be of use to them is their potential plan for a Remain alliance between the Lib Dems, the Green Party and Plaid Cymru in Wales, with each standing aside where the other has a better chance of taking on the Tories. So yes, ironically, at least two parties will always have to advocate themselves leaving. The Lib Dems have come under fire for campaign material containing yet more misleading bar graphs, much like the last election, causing many to question their ability to excel. I'm, I'm not sorry, I'm, I'm not. At a rally in Glasgow, SNP leader and at least six of the cast members in TV's El Dorado, Nicola Sturgeon, told supporters that Scotland's future must be put into Scotland's hands, which would make it really tricky to carry anything else like shopping or wear gloves. She said the general election was the most important election for the country in their lifetimes, which is probably due to such low life expectancy in Scotland, and that their country stands at a crossroads moment, which is funny as that's another 80s show that Sturgeon was definitely about eight of the cast in. So, as per usual with current politics, no one really knows how this election will pan out. Over 50 MPs are standing down and not contesting their seat on December the 12th, meaning Parliament is losing over 1,000 years of experience, which, funnily enough, is equivalent to the amount of time it will take to pass Brexit. Lots of female MPs are standing down due to the high levels of abuse they receive and Parliament being increasingly bullish and intimidating, which is really bleak and quite upsetting. But on the plus side, one of the MPs standing down is tooth marks in some meat jelly, Mark Field, so that should reduce the violence towards women in the House of Commons by about 30%. Tactical voting is being used by many voters to work out just who is best to vote for in their area to either get the Conservatives out or to remain or to leave, because it seems just looking up previous election results and using common sense is far too hard for some people. Personally, I will also be tactically voting, but by that I mean I'll approach the polling station in a pincer movement before silently dropping in from the ceiling and throwing my own pen at the ballot paper from a distance before retreating into the shadows. In other news, the Phase 1 report on the Grenfell Tower tragedy was released and it blamed systematic failures with the fire brigade's response on the night, which is bonkers to do when so many of the government's cuts to fire services and building regulation safety checks have affected how they work. It's like blaming soldiers on the front line that have ill-fitting boots and weapons that jam for losing the war. 
Johnson said that justice will be done, but it's been two years and still many families that have lost their homes have not been rehoused, and lots of other high-rise buildings are still covered in the dangerous flammable cladding. So forgive me if I don't trust a man who won't even abide by car safety laws to fix things. Phase two of the inquiry, looking at the systematic and construction failures that led to the disaster, begins next year, and will no doubt result in government and council officers getting off scot-free, while stairs will be publicly condemned for not being as useful for escape as slides are. And lastly, ISIS have named their new leader, which is weird, as if he had no name beforehand, how did he apply for the job? Hmm. And back in the Commons, MP and Nick Park creation Sir Lindsay Doyle was elected as Speaker of the House. So as a Labour minister, I guess he'll be the best person to go to the pub with, as he'll be ordering for the many, not the few. That is genuinely one of the worst things I've ever written. Oh, and just as I'm recording, the Brexit Party candidate for Batley and Spen, and woman who looks like she'd still play with the box rather than the present, Jill Hughes, has stood down after it was revealed that she believes in elves, fairies, mermaids and unicorns, that her horse was reincarnated as another horse, total sideways move, and that she comes from the star Sirius. Yep, comes from another solar system and believes in otherworldly creatures, yet still wants tough borders on the channel. For fuck's sake. Yeah, Papal Broads, how's you? I can't believe it's election time again. It seems to roll around quicker every year, doesn't it? It's only a matter of days before all the shops are playing all the election songs like um, Jerusalem and that one by Keen. And then all the election merchandise will be in stores like little rosettes to hang on your tree and crackers that contain paper ties and info on the expenses your local candidate has claimed illegally. Could it feel any more festive? Of course not. Are you sick of it yet? The audience I played to in Cambridge on Friday pretty much balked at me mentioning it all. I sort of meant I had to backtrack and bore them with parenting gags instead, which was a real shame. I mean, for me, uh, obviously. And that's who gigs are all about, right? All those people definitely bought tickets to hear me entertain myself. And it has, of course, been Fireworks Central in my local area this week. I'm sure you've got it in yours as well. Remember, remember, it's just all of November, apparently. Um, Those things moving, it's not as mad as last year when we got that firework through the window. Luckily, the place we now rent has double glazing, so if one did get flung at the window, it'd likely sort of bounce back and then hit the flingy in the face, resulting in something both horrible and yet probably beautiful to watch. Not that I would wish that on anyone, so I'm relieved not to be in a veritable banger war zone anymore, although that sounds like it would be some sort of violent sausage-based thing, which could be quite fun. Anyway, um, instead, there's been loads of family-friendly firework events around our way, which are supposedly quieter, therefore ignoring how the most family-friendly you could be is just by using extremely loud fireworks so that I couldn't hear my daughter constantly asking us for things that she doesn't actually want. There's no winning. There's really no winning. Uh, Due to all the terrible weather, we've mostly watched out of the window as neighbours have put on their own shitty displays, which is brilliant to show a toddler. Oh, look, one solitary firework, and maybe... Another one, if we come back in 10 minutes when they've managed to set it up. And, oh, no, no, I think they're done. Oh, there's a bang. Oh, where's the lights? Oh, it's crying and screaming. Maybe, maybe we'll just close the blinds now. Um, But rather than fireworks and baked potatoes and hot chocolate, what warms my heart, well, those things, uh, but also the fact that you are all still listening to this show, meaning that either you're not sick of the election yet or you're kind enough to leave it on play on your phone uh, while you do something else because you don't want me to feel alone. Thank you for that. Um, and special thanks this week to Rob and somebody who wished to remain anonymous for the Kofi donations this week. As I mentioned in the bonus episode last week, which some of you listened to, despite it only being nine minutes long. I'd have thought that'd be uh, positive for all of you, wouldn't it? In my head, I want all podcasts to only be that long, and then I might get to listen to them all the way through. But hey, if you would prefer no more bonus episodes during this election run, if it's too much me, then do let me know. Um, and if you've not had time to check it out yet, please do, as it contains many election jokes that are not on this episode. 
episode. Anyway, as I explained on that, uh, any donations to the podcast to either the Kofi ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro sites are really appreciated as I have to do even more work for this show than normal and God knows how many rewrites, extras and whatever else will need to happen so coffees will be necessary, please. Um, I will be trying to put up a list probably on all the social medias, maybe even on the website of all the podcasts of the past and which ones relate to which sort of topics should you want to listen to the interviews um, and info in them during the election. When will I do that? I don't know. Maybe I should never sleep again. Um, also, please keep reviewing the show on all the pod apps, but especially Apple Podcasts. And just in general, spread the word. If you see people reviewing podcasts uh, online, in newspapers, just in your class or at work, or you get emails that recommend which ones people should listen to, um, and you have a spare minute to contact those people and say that they need Parpol Bro in their lives, that would be very much appreciated. Um, they always ask for that sort of thing. Um, and what do you want from the show as the next few weeks carry on do you need facts figures or light relief or maybe just sort of endless white noise you can play when the news is on to get you through it all let me know and i will cater for your needs like an audio chef admin thingies uh first up our kids politics show that i do with tatton from simple politics which is a website i forgot to recommend in the bonus episode but is a necessary requirement for throughout the election to understand what on earth is going on um that's simplepolitics.co.uk go there look at it absorb it all into your eyes um anyway uh, we've got our how does this politics thing work then show at the winford primary school in chew valley on saturday the 9th of november that's out in the west country um followed by very nearby the wardrobe theater in bristol on sunday the 10th of november and we've just added a how does this general election thing work then show at the Greenwich Theatre on November the 30th should your children need to know why you keep screaming at the telly and the internet please come along to that and you can check out politics4kids.co.uk for all the deets on those um, also Cat Day who brilliantly writes up all the links from this show each week so I can pop them on the website and who also says things to me like you forgot to mention simple politics on your bonus episode yes I did oh dear thanks Cat um, she's written a chapter in a book currently being funded on unbound.com called A Wild and Precious Life, a recovery anthology, which is full of stories about addiction, physical and mental illness and its aftermath. If you can, please help the fundraiser, which will involve you getting a book, uh, so that's great. And you can do that via unbound.com or the link that I popped in the pod blurb. And lastly, I mention it every week at the moment, but the Future Curious podcast that I now host too. um, And as I've noticed, I say curious really weird, don't I? Curious, curious... Curious. Who knows? Maybe that's right. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to find out. Well, there'll be a new episode out this week, uh, but also last week's is ridiculously well-timed, as it's all about methods of predicting political outcomes. So do subscribe and have a listen to that. On this week's show, I speak to Daniel Trilling, a journalist and writer who specialises in the plight of refugees coming to Europe, and we have a chat in the light of the very sad story of the 39 people found dead in a lorry in Essex just over two weeks ago. Plus, in complete contrast to that, there's a whole new section called Election Flex, with some thoughts for what's happening already and what may come. Yes, that title is awful. No, it won't be changing. You're welcome. Just about two weeks ago, you may have seen the depressing and tragic story about 39 people being found dead in a lorry in Essex. Um, There are still details that aren't known about that case. And while criminal prosecutions have been made, the circumstances around why those poor people were on their way to the UK is not yet clear. What we do know is that it raises a lot of questions as to why people choose to, or in some cases have to, come to the UK under such dangerous and life-risking methods. 
We keep hearing from various politicians that we need to restrict our borders, and Theresa May made a big effort to push out the hostile environment policy as if the UK needed to be any more unwelcoming when it already had her government in charge and the harshest trolling of trees that is the Daily Mail free at every airport greeting visitors by telling them to go home again. Depending on the election results, this looks like it won't be changing anytime soon, with Home Secretary and the anti-social net smirk Priti Patel insisting that the country will have an Australian-style points system, which either means that, like Aussie rules football, people migrating over will get given points in a completely nonsensical, chaotic style. Or, more likely, it'll just be harder for anyone who isn't rich to ever live and work here. It's always baffling that to play to the racist trope of foreigners coming over here and taking our jobs, people like Patel make rules so that people can only come over and take the best jobs and houses. Yeah, take that, now they'll only have the jobs you're too stupid to have. I really can't work out if it's super xenophobic or the exact opposite. But when all the facts and figures say that immigration is vital and beneficial to a nation, and it's no way as high as people seem to think it is, why is the British government hell-bent on making paths harder to get here? If Britain is supposedly the greatest country in the world, as we're so often told, why won't they let anyone come and see? This week I got to speak to Daniel Trilling, a brilliant journalist and author who often writes about the horrific situations and treatment that refugees, asylum seekers and others immigrating to the UK are subjected to. I saw Daniel some years ago on an excellent panel about the accessibility of London and how a city of immigration is becoming less open. He was so fascinating to listen to that I've been reading a lot of his work and following him online since, and I was very pleased that he had time to speak to me last week. I asked him all about the effectiveness of tough borders, why people risk their lives coming to this place, I mean, have they seen the state of it, and what to expect in the future for the UK's immigration laws. Here's Daniel. So we're speaking about a week and a bit after the the rather tragic incident uh, of thirty nine people found uh, in in the lorry in Essex. Um, is is this a very regular occurrence? Are people being trafficked to the UK a lot more than we think? I, I well, for starters, it, it depends what you mean by being trafficked. But I'll put put that aside for a moment. There are regularly people entering the UK by hiding in the back of lorries uh, or inside or underneath other vehicles that are coming through British ports. Um, the people that do that do it for a variety of reasons. Uh, many of those people will be coming to the UK because they want to claim asylum, because they're they're refugees from one part of the world or another. Uh, but also other people doing it will, will be coming to the UK because they want to work or study. Um, and often, it, you know, people traveling will be will be a mix of all of those things uh, to come back to the question of trafficking. So there's a few different terms that, that surround this kind of activity and it's worth unpicking them just a little bit. Trafficking is usually mean uh, it's, it's normally used to mean people who are being moved around the world and being coerced while they're doing it. So there's some kind of exploitation going on implied by the term trafficking. Uh, smuggling would, would be a more general term that, that would imply some kind of organised effort to facilitate the movement of people across borders when they don't have permission. And I mean, in the case of the people who, who died uh, in the lorry found in Essex last week, at the moment, we just don't know uh, that much about uh, the circumstances under which they were traveling and whether they were being you know coerced whether they were doing it of their own free will i think often what you find is it, it can be a mix of of these things sure and, and is I mean, smuggling there's there's an element of exploitation in that as well isn't there because from the little i understand it people are um people are charged quite a lot of money to be smuggled to other countries what yeah, although, again, smuggling covers a huge range of activities. So it could be, for example, refugees in Calais helping one another uh, 
conceal themselves in vehicles. Uh, people may charge money for it, and it, you know, at times will respond to the the laws of supply and demand like any other business. Uh, the people providing the smuggling services, as it were, will have a variety of motivations for doing so. So some people will be genuinely trying to help each other out. Other people will be trying to gouge as much money as they can from the people who are coming to them for services. Uh, but the overarching factor is obviously it's it's illegal. Governments are trying to stop it happening. So what that means is people are pushed into doing it in the shadows, um, which opens up much more scope for people to come along and abuse and exploit those in need uh, of, of that kind of service. So you mentioned earlier some of the reasons why people might want to come to the UK uh, for studying or for family. Or I'm sure there's many, many uh, very valid reasons. But we've had increasingly harsh immigration policies in the UK, including the hostile environment policy. Um, why do people want to come here even when, uh, you know, we're actively telling people not to and making it very difficult for them? Well, there are lots of reasons why people would still want to come to the UK. It's one of the world's richest countries, so it has opportunities for work, for study, and so on uh, that people might feel they don't have elsewhere in the world. It's you know it, it, it was it's a former empire. There are all of these connections with countries that were previously colonies, and so there are long-standing historic and cultural connections with many other parts of the world. And also, I think this this is often uh, not recognised, but migration isn't. You know, in, in, in a way that any of us would move, all, all the kind of legal forms of migration there are, people don't just randomly, you know, they don't look at a menu of countries and, and pick one off a list. People tend to travel to places where they either already have connections, so where there are existing diaspora communities, family connections, other cultural connections, or they follow routes that people have already taken. You know, if you think about where you choose to go on holiday, for example, if you go abroad, it will be as much based on where people that you know have gone before and can tell you about as it is you reading up on it and doing thorough research. Well, even even at this other end of the, the sort of spectrum of human movement, those, those kind of factors still play a big part. Um, and then the other big thing with, with the UK is obviously language. English is a global language. And I know from, from my own reporting, I've met dozens of uh, people around Europe who are in Europe uh, looking for asylum or migrating for other reasons that people will often say they want to go to the UK because they already know English and it's it's going to allow them to restart their lives a lot sooner than for example having to learn French from scratch or German or another European language right that, yeah that makes that makes perfect sense and um, I mean so the interesting thing is though is that t- tough borders don't you know don't stop the situation they just sort of encourage it to happen in more dangerous ways Uh, yeah i mean the way that i like to put it is that governments may want to shape uh the nature and scale of immigration to a particular country but i think it's a complete illusion that you can switch it on and off like a tap um and i think often problems are caused by state policies that seek to create absolutes so they seek you know if there's a group of people that are trying to migrate in a certain way uh that policies kind of pretend that you can just completely stop that and make it go away and what often happens instead is that you know some people might be deterred from migrating but there will always be among them people who will feel they have to move no matter what or that the risks are worth taking and in that context what harsh border controls do is push people to take more difficult and more dangerous routes. So it actually opens up the potential for 
for more deaths, uh, as, as you've seen in the Mediterranean in, in the last five years or so. You know, there's been this huge crackdown on uh, people moving by boat from, from Libya towards Italy. And although the overall number of crossings has been reduced after there's been this this real crackdown by Italy and other European states. Actually, the death rate has gone up. It's still a very uh, deadly route because people are, you know, some people still try. And the other thing that it does when, when you make something illegal, when you bring in increasingly harsh penalties or modes of deterrence, is that that opens up an underground trade. So I guess it's a bit like trying to you know, governments are trying to win the war on drugs. What they do is they they may well push drugs out of mainstream society, but they end up fueling a, a huge illegal drug trade where there's a lot of abuse and exploitation and so on. And with the movement of people, you see similar things happening. So there's much more opportunity for smugglers and smugglers can effectively, you know, while some of them might be relatively benign, they're effectively able to behave the how they like because the whole of their business is being done underground anyway. I suppose the big question is, we, we sort of asked why they might want to come to the UK, but why are people prepared to risk their lives? I mean, what's the main reason for people migrating now? Is it still situations like Syria and civil wars, rather a number of other reasons? Uh, it, it's not only people fleeing wars, although that is a big reason. Um, I think the, the UN refugee agency uh, would say that there are there are more people displaced by conflict in the world today than at any point since the Second World War. Um, that's a slightly misleading figure that I think can end up lead you know creating a sense of panic because obviously there are more people alive in the world today than, than there was at the time of the Second World War. Um, and as a proportion of the world's population, refugees as refugees have stayed relatively constant. And it's about 0.3% of the world's population. Uh, but there are ongoing wars and other forms of oppression that force people to flee their home countries. And the real problem, actually, is that uh, rich states in you know, Europe, North America, Australia and elsewhere have actually been pushing refugees away from their borders increasingly. So the proportion of the world's refugees hosted in developing countries has actually gone up in the last decade. So actually more of the world's refugees are uh, in, in staying in poorer parts of the world. Whereas what's happened is that as borders have got tougher around the West and other rich bits of the world, people have been pushed away. However, some people will still try to to travel and the reason why they do that is usually first of all because they haven't found the kind of protection they're looking for elsewhere but also because even when someone is a refugee they are also often what the media calls economic migrants so they're, they're also looking to rebuild their lives and they're not just looking for safety but somewhere where they feel they have a future and so alongside those people there will be people traveling who have not fled a conflict in their home country but will be traveling because they're in search of better lives in one way or another because they want jobs they want to be able to support families at home who they feel they can't support if they stay where they're put uh climate change may have radically altered the uh you know the economy or the ecosystems in countries they're leaving and so on uh, but i think a common misunderstanding there is that people who move for economic reasons in this fashion only do so out of abject poverty uh, which often you then get the response from governments or policymakers saying, oh, well, we, we, we just need to invest in development in other bits of the world and, and that will stop people wanting to migrate. And actually, I think there's been quite a lot of um, uh, good scholarship done to show that people are in fact more likely to move when their country or their region's economy start to grow. So 
migration from sub-Saharan Africa, for example, people coming towards Europe, um, has actually increased as countries in, say, West Africa, East Africa, have have started to develop. Because what happens then is that people are no longer thinking about their day-to-day subsistence, and they're thinking about the kind of things that I think probably you and I would take for granted that we think about, like not just am I going to survive from day to day, but how do I live a fulfilling life? How do I live the kind of life that I want? And so there was a there was a study recently carried out by the UN's development project based on interviews with hundreds of people from sub-Saharan Africa who had migrated to Europe in the last 10 years via um uh, clandestine routes, i.e. without, you know, they, they had crossed borders without permission. And it found it found exactly this. People were leaving countries when those countries were growing economically. But obviously, if a country is growing economically, it doesn't mean it's great for everybody because capitalism rests on inequality and turmoil and the rest of it. And what people were were doing was they were leaving their homes because they didn't like the amount of injustice or corruption in their country, or they didn't like the feeling that there were some people doing very well out of the economy and at the expense of others. You know, that's an issue those of us who live in Britain deal with as well. Um, and the, the other, I think, crucial bit of that survey was that it found that people were, were actually quite aware of the risks of the journeys they'd taken. And a large proportion of people surveyed by the UN who'd come from sub-Saharan Africa to Europe said that, you know, having having made their journeys and knowing now uh, the full truth about the risks, would they do it again? And I think maybe like 80 or 90% of them said, yes, they would. So this, this for me is a really crucial point, which is not that, um, you know, it's not about the kind of whether this is right or wrong. It's, it's to recognise that more often than I think we're, we're willing to acknowledge people making these kind of journeys or using the services of smugglers or traffickers are, are doing this with quite a great degree of agency themselves. They're making choices, uh, not necessarily the right choices, not necessarily the best informed choices, but they're doing what most of us would try and do in those situations, which is to retain control of their lives. Wow, that's that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's something very disheartening, thinking that other people are coming to the UK to escape sort of capitalist injustice in their own hands. I feel like uh, right, yes. they should be slightly. We should let them know about uh, our current government a bit more. Um, but it's uh, you know. W- I'm someone who very much believes in in open borders. I'm very pro-immigration. As someone who travels, I get to travel around the world and do my job. I feel like other people should be. But but why aren't there legal routes to do this? I mean, there are for people escaping a war, aren't there? There's certain conventions uh, that countries have to take in a certain amount of asylum seekers or provide for refugees. Is is that right? But yeah, it's, uh, it's very vaguely because the situation here seems to have got a bit more blurry with the detention centres and everything else. Yeah, well, so on the issue of refugees, all European countries and most of the world's uh, states are signed up to uh, the UN Convention on Refugee Rights, which sets out some some basic principles. Uh, one is that you have the right to ask for asylum in any country that signed up to that refugee convention and that you shouldn't be penalised for crossing a border without permission in search of asylum. And, uh, you know, Britain, like other European countries, has translated those principles into its domestic law. And, you know, to a certain degree, it does uphold them. Britain does grant asylum to many people who come here and claim it. However, I think what you've seen in Europe in the last couple of decades is 
basically trying to countries trying to put obstacles in the way of people so that they never even make it there to claim asylum and access their rights or setting up very complex bureaucratic and often hostile systems of assessing who deserves asylum and who doesn't so you mentioned detention centers for example that's a good example where britain you know britain does give asylum to people but the kind of assault course that they have to go through in order to get it has become more and more fearsome in in the last few years um so so that's just on a question of refugees so while there are legal routes and while there are some safe routes to asylum such as the british government offering to resettle up to 20,000 syrian refugees direct from camps in the middle east as it did a few years ago um legal and safe routes to asylum have have increasingly being closed down by the UK and other Western governments in in the last decade or two. Uh, on, on the wider question of um, legal migration routes uh, for people travelling for other reasons, I think, first of all, it's worth saying there are lots of them, and most people who migrate from outside Europe to the UK or to Europe do so via legal routes on uh, various kinds of visas, you know, that, that that may be temporary, but but the you know are are there and approved by governments that are allowing people to travel. People come for work, they come for study, uh, they come because they they marry partners who have citizenship in those countries. Um, Britain has been making those things much more difficult in recent years, but they still exist. Um, but you then get people who who don't have the permission to come and want to try and move uh via these other means that we're, we're talking about today um i think in europe as a whole uh a statistic from a few years ago was that nine out of ten people who migrate to europe from outside the eu do so via legal routes so um i think that runs somewhat counter to the impression you get in the media that migration is mainly a question of people using smugglers traveling by boat sneaking across borders and the rest of it, it it's not but an understandable reason why we focus on that is because the people travelling by, by those routes find themselves in the most difficult and dangerous situations and it, it can cause the most kind of political controversy in, in countries they're trying to reach as well. Um, just to, to, to sort of sum up there, I think the crucial thing for me is that, you know, you have this situation where governments have set their policies. They say, OK, we want people to you know, we want these people from these countries to be able to come to our country legally. Here are all the ways in which they can do it. But we don't want any of these other people. So we won't make any provision for them. And um, our, our only solution to that really is to just try and clamp down on them and make them illegal or put in more kinds of border control and the rest of it. And I think for me that that flies in the face of the rea reality that, well, people are going to try and come anyway. So so what are you going to do about that? And for me, a more, more you know, without even to get getting into the, the realms of sort of hypothetically discussing a world without borders at all and the rest of it, which is, you know, that's an important conversation. Uh, but but slightly. I'll leave that to the side for the moment um, that even within the current system, you could see governments shaping their immigration policies much more around the reality of who is moving and why and who wants to. So right at the height of the refugee crisis in Europe in 2015, for example, there was a very interesting interview in The Guardian with uh, the UN's special rapporteur on migration, 
who said it would be perfectly simple for uh, Europe to deal with this refugee crisis with, with two main measures. One was large-scale resettlement of refugees from the Middle East and North Africa um, and for European countries to to pull together and, and offer to host people across Europe so no one country was left with, with the burden of caring for people uh, all by itself. And the other measure he mentioned, which was much less discussed at the time, was a system of temporary work visas for people coming from Africa and other parts of the world to Europe. Because the crucial thing there was that people are coming anyway um, because they're doing it via these smuggler routes. It's, it's a much more chaotic and dangerous method of travel. Uh, that causes problems politically in the countries they're arriving in as well. Uh, it means that when people do arrive, if they're denied asylum and want to continue working, then they'll have to do it on the black market, which lays them open to uh, various forms of exploitation. That's a big thing in the UK as well as in other um, countries. And also that border restrictions make it much harder for people if they come to a place in search of work and don't find it to leave again or to go home. Because if you've entered a country without permission, and you're hiding from the authorities, you're much less likely to then go and present yourself to the authorities and say, well, OK, I came here illegally in search of work, but I didn't find any. So is it all right if I go home? Uh, please don't put me in a detention centre or send me to prison. You know, in Britain, uh, for example, one of the measures that Theresa May brought in when she was Home Secretary as part of the hostile environment was to make working illegally a criminal offence. So now if you work... Uh, you know, if you if you take paid work in the UK when you don't have the permission to be here, you can be sent to prison just for that. So so all of these, the, the harsher the measure the measures that are put in place, the harder it is for people to come and go. And I think that's really really important to recognise that migration is not a one way street. That when it's when it's open and easy and free, people come and go. And denying people that right is what causes many of the problems that are then. Uh, supposedly fixed by even more immigration control. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And we'll be back with Daniel in a minute, but it's new jingle time. Check out the 
Flex, yes, that is the new jingle, and yes, it did take longer to listen to than it took to make it, but that's okay. There's only six weeks of that jingle until we have another snap election spring next year, of course, followed by one in the autumn, another two in the winter, and then 15 in 2021. So, this little bit is going to be taking over from Brexit fallout until the election is done, and what I need to know from you is... What do you need to hear about? Uh, do you want me to go through parties' manifestos or were manifestos or themifestos? What about current polls, tactical voting, or just 600 million reasons why you shouldn't vote Conservative? Get in touch, let me know what you need. But for now, this week, as the election is just ramping up and not all the parties have launched their campaigns yet, I thought I'd take you through a tiny look at just one of the things that has been proposed by both the Conservatives and the Labour Party, which is, of course, the NHS. And this upcoming election is going to be the first in ages where both main parties promised to up spending because let's face it the only way they could cut spending after the last nine years is by pledging to come round your house and steal your biscuits so first to the conservatives as they're the ones currently gaming the throne and my oh my has their reign dragged on Pretty much all this podcast has ever been since episode one is telling you how and why all their policies have been awful. But rather than just do a sort of compilation edit of their worst bits, let's look at what Johnson's cabinet has said in the last few days. The NHS is going to be a big old battleground in this election, not least because it'll be happening during winter when the health service takes an extra hit, always runs out of beds and has a terrible crisis with the amount of excess deaths in 2017 to 18 being the highest since 1976 when they didn't even have doctors or medicine, probably. Then usually the Conservatives say something like, ah, well, at least that's less people to heat in your homes or something sensitive like that, and then carry on being in government. I mean, they've never said that, but they probably thought it. Or thought those words, but in a different, unrelated sentence. Anyway, this year the NHS will be hit with those bed shortages and understaffing right as the parties are campaigning, which really won't be great for the party that have effectively caused those issues. Good, they might finally get a taste of their overpriced medicine. Over the weekend, Johnson claimed that his NHS plans are the biggest investment in the health service in recent history. Are they? Well, unless Johnson's about to change his pledge, which, let's face it, he probably will every five minutes until polling day, the PM announced back in September that as well as the £33.9 billion that Theresa May pledged for the NHS that would be going on until 2023, on top of that, there would be £13 billion on new or upgraded hospitals, which Johnson said would pay for 40 of those. But as you probably heard, the plans are actually only to upgrade six hospitals between now and 2025, with a further 38 receiving money between 2025 and 2030, so if you're waiting for an operation in six weeks, it's probably not going to be that much help. But as you probably heard, the plans are actually only to upgrade six hospitals between now and 2025, which to be fair is about how long you'll be on a waiting list for for most standard treatments. With further hospitals receiving money between 2025 and 2030, but not for building work, so maybe they can just put up a few posters, buy some new throw cushions or maybe a sharp spin. So, the numbers for this are all over the place, especially as Johnson seems to have changed his pledge throughout the year, but six hospitals get £2.7 billion for a new hospital building programme, and another 21 hospital trusts will get £100 million, which all sounds like loads, but it's not really enough to fix things. The money for the hospitals new or upgraded, on top of the money that's already ring-fenced for the NHS, means that there's about £3 billion of additional funds for each place. But most of the hospitals that have been targeted for this are in such a state of disrepair that they'd need £6 billion a year just to keep 
keep up. So this pledge of dosh is not so much life-saving as just giving the NHS a decent anaesthetic so it won't feel everything around it collapse. But yes, in recent history, it is the most money that the NHS has got. But it's also worth noting that not all of it is new money. Some of it is money that NHS trusts had already earned, but they'd been told that they couldn't spend. And now they'd have to crack open their savings piggy banks just to make the head pig look good. Senior policy analyst at the Nuffield Trust, Sally Gainsbury, is quoted as saying that to claim that this is new money is like finally giving back the £10 you borrowed some time ago and expecting to be applauded loudly for it. Though in Johnson's case, if he actually returned £10 I'd lent him, having assumed he'd have just handed it over to somebody fancy that said they had a new business, I would be so shocked that I'd probably clap. In comparison is Labour's NHS plan, which we haven't got all the details for yet, but they say overall spending will increase, funded for by taxing the highest earners more than they've been taxed before. Plus, they'd increase tax on private medical insurance. Prescription charges would be scrapped and they'd commission a state drug company to make medicines cheaper, which I hope they'd call the National Drugs Administration with a logo saying NDA so no one knows if they can tell each other about it or not. Hmm. Labour say that they'd roll back all the privatisation that's happened to the health service so far, which I presume includes GPs, and they'd create a new national care service for personal care for the over 65s. And all of that sounds dandy, but the costing hasn't been revealed yet, and their last manifesto pledged £30 billion in extra funding, but this time would need to add the £750 million for axing prescription charges, and £6 million for doubling who receives social care. Basically, it's loads of money, so the question is, if all the super rich piss off out the country before they pay any tax, does it happen? There are currently 150 billionaires in Britain who between them have assets of over £525 billion, despite being only 0.0002% of the population. A large chunk of them were born into it, others have gained and maintained their wealth through property speculation and rising housing prices, and others, like Mike Ashley, from other people's misery are being a massive piece of shit. HMRC data from March this year shows that 381,000 taxpayers who earn more than £150,000 a year pay more than the lowest paid 20 million taxpayers, but they still don't quite pay what they earn as lots of its via methods are taxed at lower rates. The poorest fifth of the population pay 36.4% of their income in tax, while the richest pay 34.6%. Yeah, all the same numbers, but in the wrong order. Also, that's on their income, not their accumulated wealth. Corbyn's plans are to put a 50p tax rate on those earning over 123 grand a year, whereas at the moment the top tax rate is just 45p. But there's no figures yet on what it would all bring in, doesn't account for any loopholes they may work out, or what happens if all of those people flee, but I guess if they do, at least Labour can use all their abandoned properties to house the homeless for free, which will immediately cover one of their other policies, uh, cost-free. Oh, and some people have said that Corbyn is a millionaire, so it's a bit much for him to criticise them, which is not view as being a millionaire and paying your taxes doesn't mean you can't suggest other millionaires also pay their taxes to benefit society. But all the figures I could find say that Corbyn's classed as a millionaire because of his accumulated salary as an MP for over 30 years, which means that he'd have had to not spend absolutely any of it. On the plus side, if that is the case, I should be a millionaire in about 15 to 20 years if I don't eat, drink, pay my rent and I just sit in a corner and wait to die. Um, has any of that helped? Uh, probably not. Uh, but in Labour's favour, they haven't been in charge of the NHS for nine years, and the Conservatives have, and we can all see what they've done, so trying to pop a plaster on a severed limb really won't help much unless they pledge an awful lot more. I haven't seen the Lib Dems NHS pledges yet, but I guess it'll be something along the lines of, we'd like to stay in the EU, please. Um, the SNPs is probably, ha ha ha, we're in Scotland and prescriptions are free anyway, dickhead, so suck it. And the Brexit party likely wants to get rid of all hospitals as they have them in Europe, so they're probably bad. 
Uh, yes, that's a lot to digest. Um, but basically, uh, conservative policies aren't really going to manage to do what they say they are, and they may not be what their policies are anyway. And Labour's policies haven't yet been costed, so we don't know if any of them make sense and what if all the millionaires just fuck off. I hope that's the sort of grade aid content you need, or if you'd like more basic overviews of this is bad, that's great, this is terrible, or something else entirely. Either way, the jingle's staying. Yes, yes it does. You don't have a choice. Six more weeks of that. And now, back to Daniel. Which, I mean, it's also bizarre because... Uh, I, so, uh and very similar thing I remember hearing a podcast not long ago about in the US and how when they closed the border to Mexico that increased immigration levels because Mexican people couldn't go back to Mexico after seasonal work because they were trapped with the issue of crossing back the border but then that increases all the immigration figures which then makes the kind of easier to create an ideology about immigration rising and and so surely these measures are just kind of fueling the anger towards immigration it becoming a, a problem. Well, I think they do play a part because I think there's, you know, not not only in terms of the the actual numbers, but but when you criminalise something, you you add this huge stigma to it. So, you know, if you say there are fifty thousand illegal immigrants in the UK as opposed to fifty thousand Irish people who have come here via legal routes, you know, I'm, I'm using Ireland as an example because the UK does have open borders with the Republic of Ireland. Effectively, uh, we've got a common travel area, but nobody regards that as you know this dangerous form of immigration it's has at least in recent years been taken for granted although brexit may well disrupt that but when something's criminalized i th- i think it this stigma does actually help fuel the hostility towards immigration that that, that you've seen in britain and elsewhere um taking center stage in recent in recent years in politics um obviously creating freer movement doesn't doesn't remove the the political challenges either um but i think it's the only way in the long term to do that i think just just to give another example of the difference this makes if you think before before 2004 when the countries in central and eastern europe joined the eu and opened up you you had people from those countries coming to the uk to do various forms of work and at the you know at that point it was came under that heading illegal immigration uh yet the people who were doing this say seasonal agricultural workers coming to work on british farms were doing the same jobs before 2004 and after 2004 when free movement was extended to those countries in eastern and central europe and removing the 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 air of illegality about it took away a lot of the stigma Um, obviously since then the free movement of people from that part of Europe and from other parts of Europe has become a big point of political debate and fed in, you know, has fed fed into the Brexit debate over over the last few years. But even then, at least when you are talking about these things openly, you can you can have political arguments about it. It becomes much more possible for people to defend the right of people to move than it is when everything is kind of under you know under cover of darkness and and wrapped up in. Uh, you know, ideas about criminality or slavery or trafficking or abuse and the rest of it. One of the things that the government did recently um, was put take foreign students off the immigration numbers list, which 
felt I, I was sort of pleasantly surprised that they did that. But that's a really important move, isn't it? Because if we're just seeing foreign students as lumped in with the rest of the immigration numbers, that could cause hostility towards people that want to study. Uh, yes. I mean, it also shows how much perception of immigration and what categories people fall into is shaped by state policy. Um, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a feature of, of the modern state. It needs to be able to you know, the, the way that state policy is carried out in all sorts of areas, uh, in all parts of society, is that it needs to be able to see uh, the people that it's dealing with. So it needs to be able to count people. That's why we have censuses and that's why, you know, we have NHS numbers and the rest of it. Uh, but that, f you know, all those different forms of counting are in themselves political because the state is always defining who belongs to one category and who doesn't, who who is deserving and who is undeserving in many cases. So, I mean, I'd, I wouldn't say there's a kind of neat solution where you can just kind of take certain people out of immigration figures. For me, it it's maybe more productive in the long run to recognise that all of these things are forms of migration. You know, coming to the UK to study, even if it's only tempor if it's even if it's only temporary, is a form of movement. You know, as is uh, me moving from one city in the UK to another for work, or because I feel like a change of scene, or whatever. And to argue for the right of people to do that in all its forms, rather than to keep sectioning off bits and saying, "Well, this one's okay, so we'll we'll move it out of the conversation," because that always leaves the question of, "Well, what about the stuff that is supposedly not okay? What about the people left on the other side of that line?" Yeah, yeah. It's. It, I mean, that feels like it's the biggest challenge with with all of this, as you, as you mentioned, that some people are allowed to move and some people aren't. And uh, I always sort of assume that there is racist overtones uh, as to why some are and some aren't. Um, but you know, you've you've studied, uh, you've you've researched uh, your book, Lights in the Distance, and you've written a lot of articles about it. You've met a lot of people who are migrating. Is it? Do you think that a lot of people don't realise that you know, people that are travelling are just other human beings that have got human desires for a better life, like we all do? It's 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 a it's a natural human thing, isn't it, to want to kind of live somewhere better and do better for your family? Well, I think people know that, but they often choose to ignore it. First of all, but I also think that. I mean, it's, it's this idea of seeing people as human or humanising people, I think, can often become quite superficial. So you see it a lot with refugees who are often people in quite immediate need, you know, people in need of safety, food, shelter, the rest of it. They, you know, if you think of famous you know, photographs of people living in tent camps in very rudimentary conditions and the rest of it, and, you you know, you see that on charity adverts, uh, on public transport and in, in various forms of media coverage. But if the your idea of your idea of humanity or how people are humanized is only that, then it can I think it can backfire even when people have good intentions because it risks removing people's political agency. So people who need food, safety and shelter are also people who want things out of life, who have got ideas about how society should be organized, who have got ideas about what role they want to play in society. And those ideas can be just as strong motivating factors in 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 their movement across borders as the more kind of basic elemental needs they have. And just uh, we're speaking just as uh, the election has been announced just a few days ago. Are you? I mean, obviously the current government, uh, who are about not to be possibly, we don't know. Um, they uh, they've been proposing an immigration changes in a points based system, um, and obviously there's the whole issue of Brexit. But are, are, are there any? 
ideas coming up that you think are the way forward or that you're hoping will be addressed o- over this campaign period? Or do you think that it's still politically too difficult for parties to kind of put at the forefront of what they're doing? Well, I think in part it's a relief that for once immigration isn't kind of the main issue in in a in an election campaign as it has been uh, so often in in the last 10, 15 years. Um, but on the other hand, it doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean things are going to improve. You're yeah, as you say, the 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 Conservative Party have been promising to sort of maintain their tough line on immigration. This talk of a an an Australian points-based immigration system uh, that the Home Secretary Priti Patel once again mentioned in in her Tory conference speech last month. I think is a it's a dog whistle. I mean, Britain actually does have a form of points-based immigration policy already, where people are favoured if they meet certain criteria and discouraged if they don't. Uh, but it's kind of a it's a way. You know, Australia is a you know it's a form of white settler colony that until very recently maintained, you know, until maybe the 70s or so maintained an explicitly racist immigration policy where it favoured white people. Uh, I think structurally its immigration policy still does that. And um, to talk about Australian points-based immigration policy uh, to a UK audience is kind of a way of saying, basically, we want to keep the wrong sort of foreigners out of the country. Um, On the other hand, I mean, from, you know, Labour are the main opposition. They're the, they're the only other party that's actually going to have a chance of shaping this. I think they've been, I, th- I think this is an area where they've actually been very timid, where they've, where they've tried to be radical on, say, the economy, on immigration. They've kind of, for the most part, held the line. So if you look at Diane Abbott's response as Shadow Home Secretary to the, the Essex lorry death, for example, um, you know, it, it was full of sympathy for, for the victims and, and, you know, expressed desire to protect people from traffickers who might exploit them and, and, and cause them harm. But on the other hand, the solution was we need to fund more people at our borders. We need more border control. Um, and Labour hasn't got a clear line on, you know, freedom of movement within Europe, for example, and what it would like to see if Brexit happens, for, for instance, um although you know i'm still hopeful that the people in labor and around labor activists elsewhere uh, migrants rights activists people in the green party um other kinds of campaign groups are able to kind of push for a for a more open more humane approach to immigration and that i think there's more you know having labor in government for instance would would it give more potential for that to be pushed and for that to be opened up? I know on other occasions, Diane Abbott has made a kind of tentative approach to widen the conversation within Labour, where she's, you know, she's even up against some resistance within her own party. So it's not like there aren't people trying, but at the moment there there's kind of a lot more to push for. Um, I, I'm going to be bizar- sort of bizarrely optimistic and idealistic here, but I suppose uh, Brexit fan or not uh, does have the opportunity of it, it removing free movement just for Europe could open it up to the rest of the world. Or is I mean, I know it's very unlikely, but could there potentially be a, a positive immigration outcome from a kind of uh, Brexit? Well, I mean, in theory, but my attitude to that is you don't you don't extend people's rights by taking away other people's rights. You know, I think I think with anything like that, you defend what you have. And for me, for me, freedom of movement comes down to a question of rights. 
you know, it's always being uh, cast as kind of, it's about faceless people from somewhere else who don't care, you know, whether they care or not, whether they're allowed to move, it's sort of irrelevant. It's not. It's about the rights of 500 million people in the European Union, of which, you know, we're one part. And this will be taking away rights from millions of them, including millions of UK citizens, but not only UK citizens. So so to me, that's that's the fundamental issue here with it. And it's the same with any other kind of, you know, any other right that has been achieved or won in our history that you defend what you have and extend it from there rather than kind of going backwards in the hope that something later on at some unspecified time might become possible. Yeah, I, I didn't think it would have a positive answer, to be fair. I just I thought I'd ask in case, in case there was a glimmer yeah, of hope. Yeah, it's worth yeah. asking. <laughs> um, worth asking. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. Um, and just one question that I ask all the people that I interview on this show, um, apart from yourself, obviously, uh, who listeners should follow immediately, um, who else would you recommend that listeners check up or read on for reliable reporting and information on issues of immigration and human rights? Um, who, who do you go to for information? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, look, I I share work by a lot of journalists and campaigners on on Twitter. Um, who there's probably too many of them to name here, but but that's a good place to look to see who who I'd be looking at because I'll be I'll be um, you know sharing or discussing things they've done. I think um, the Shine a Light Project, Open Democracy, do really good work on kind of the you know, what happens to people in Britain who fall foul of uh, immigration control, so deaths in detention, other kinds of human rights um, violations and the rest of it. Uh, I was just looking at books that I have around that that I feel like informed me and would be quite useful for people interested in the conversation we've just had who who wanted to take it further. Um, There's a really good book from a few years ago called Migrant, Refugee, Smuggler, Saviour, by Peter Tinty and Tuesday Retano, uh, published by Hearst, which is, uh, a, I think, a really eye-opening study of the routes people will take from Africa and the Middle East and Central Asia into Europe. Um, but it looks at it, you know, it avoids absolute. So it looks, going back to what I was saying earlier on about how smugglers can be one of all sorts of things and the people moving by, via those routes can have different and complex reasons for wanting to do so and differing levels of control over over their means of doing so. This this book for me really opens that up. It's got, it's got a huge amount of um, fascinating detail in there. Uh, there's a book by a US academic called Reese Jones called Violent Borders, which is a really good kind of analysis of uh, the sort of global system of borders we have now, how, how it came to be. Uh, the kind of damage it causes and why we shouldn't treat it as inevitable and, and, and why there is, uh, you know, a better, more open way of doing things. Uh, there's an investigative journalist called Xiao Hong Pai, who is based in the UK and has written several books of undercover investigative work on uh, migrant workers from East and Southeast Asia who come to the UK and the various forms of exploitation or control from the state that they're placed under. Um, and then there's a there's a good academic study of uh, nationalism, which we haven't talked about, but the kind of ideology that makes borders and, and defending the nation seem like common sense um, by a sociologist called Siva Mohan Van 
Sullivan. That book's called The Clamour of Nationalism, and it focuses on the UK today and looks at the different currents of nationalist ideology that are shaping our politics. So not just, you know, the far right or right wing conservatives, but liberal forms of nationalism as well, which I think, you know, are harder to recognise, but, but are really important for understanding what's going on. Thanks so much to Daniel for that. Um, you can, of course, find him on Twitter at Trilingual, uh, which is T-R-I-L-L-I-N-G-U-A-L. And his website with links to all his articles is at DanielTrilling.co.uk. And you can also find a link on there to buy his book, Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe. Oh, and the podcast I mentioned about US immigration from Mexico is the revisionist history episode from season three called General Chapman's Last Stand. It's very worth a listen. Who else to talk to? Um, it'd be great to know who you'd like to hear from over the general election weeks or what aspects of it you might think would be good to cover. Uh, get in touch. Drop me a line at Paul Polbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or maybe you could tactically send a message based on how a message was last sent most successfully where you are and copy that. Or alternatively, try something completely different based on blind faith. And then don't complain when all I receive is a gas bill in the post instead, which is what we need to avoid happening again. And that's all for this week's show, but I am muchos grateful that you listened. And if you don't listen, I am fewos grateful, which I'm sure is the correct Englandish. Don't you tell me netherwise. Um, if you did like the listening, then please also do buy me a coffee at the Kofi or Patreon sites because I've definitely tried. I've at least tried. Give the show a lovely review on them pod apps like Apple Podcasts, please. Maybe email one of the people who does podcast reviews and tell them to listen to this weekly shiz talking. And maybe tell all the people you know, all of them, even babies. Just get them all clued up so their first words are Johnson's and Arsrag. Thanks as ever to Acast, my brother the last sceptic for all the show tunes, and to Cat Day for the linear liner notes. And do give the aforementioned book that she's part of a donation if you can. This will be back next week when the Conservatives top their Britain deserves better slogan by trying an election strategy of telling Britain, it's not you, it's us, before saying they have issues they know they need to work through and then drunkenly sexting all voters at 1am. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by the ISIS Guide to Naming Leaders, featuring all your favourite leader names from the classics, as in The Professor and The Scholar, all the way to Big Daddy Terror Bastard, El Chieftain Legendo, Trouser Wearing Dave, Leader Fucker, and the exclusive ISIS Gender and Choc Isis for that special head honcho in your hostile compound. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.